today. And we've set out the four principles of stewardship. Number one is ownership. God owns everything, including you. Including you, all of you. There's the principle of responsibility. We're all responsible for what God's given to us and what he's put in our hands and what he's made us. That's non-Christians as well. We are all accountable to God for our lives and for time and our energies. We're accountable. And the whole world will be held accountable. And Christians don't get out of being accountable. We, we are not condemned. But we don't escape accountability. We will give an account for the things done in this life. And the principle of reward. We will be rewarded, commended, praised, honoured if we are good stewards. All right? And then we are stewards of time, which is really to say all of our lives. How we manage ourselves and our, our, our physical beings and our minds and our hearts. We're, the time which we have, the time of our life, we are responsible to God for ourselves. And we're responsible to the God for our talents. Uh, I won't go back over that again. I could have said more about those two, time and talent. I acknowledge that. I could have spent more time and energy on those two. Maybe spun them out another week or so. But talent means everything that God's given us, everything that, that he's equipped us with, the way he's made us, the way he's engineered us, the things that we do well, the things that we find easy in life, and the things that we have to put, perhaps put some effort into to learn a skill. But all of those abilities, all of those energies, all of those, you know, whether it's a high IQ or a, a skills in making things with your hands, we're a responsible Lord for using that for the common good. Not just even for our good, but for the common good. It serves and helps and blesses others. And then, and, uh, then lastly, of these three, there is treasure. And that's what we're coming to today. Treasure. Let's pray together. Or money. All right, am I translating you? Money. Help us, Lord Jesus. We are going to be looking at your words in particular, especially so. We highlight them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the scripture says. We want the words of Jesus to come and borrow through our hearts and uh, reshape the way we think and feel and act regarding money and treasure. We come to be taught by you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Treasure and money is what a lot of poor teaching about stewardship focuses on and neglects or omits the things we've already looked at. Ownership, responsibility, accountability. That we, we are responsible for our, ourselves, our time and our talents as well as treasure and money. But a lot of teaching on stewardship just goes straight to money. Uh, well, it is a difficult topic and a big topic. But there is a lot of bad teaching around the subject of money and wealth as well. I'm going to put some graphics on the screen, and here's a health warning, okay? Uh, I would advise you just to be quiet while these go up, all right? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, let me just give you a tip. Uh, if you say amen, you might get a look from me. That will... Okay. <laughs> so these, I just picked these at random from the internet. Every day in every way, I'm becoming more and more prosperous. I'm financially abundant and money comes to me naturally. Great wealth is flowing to me now. I can and will have more than I ever dreamed possible. I choose wealth and abundance. I see myself as wealthy and that's who I am. Making money is good for me and for everyone in my life. Money comes to me easily and effortlessly. There's a whole bunch of them on this page. I deserve the best in life. I am ready to accept abundance. I attract new income streams. I'm grateful for all of the good in my life. Money comes to me easily. I choose to accept prosperity. Those images, those statements come from a number of sources, including a Christian ministry, a secular website for investors and speculators, and a self-help, get-rich-quick, positive-thinking seminar, including those. Now, I'm not telling you where they came from. Isn't it interesting? They all say the same stuff. Yes. 
Why does the church talk about money the way the world talks about money? How far have we gone from the truth when you can't tell the difference between the scammers and some Christian ministry? These are not biblical wisdom at all. They're in fact rooted in magic. The casting of spells, the recital of incantations, the visualization and speaking out of something that you wish to create. My friends, that is not faith, that is magic. In parts of the church, what is taught as faith isn't faith, it's magic. You can make it happen if you say it. That's magic. Not faith. I decree and declare that money is flowing to me. And in the end of it, you just stick in, by the way, in the name of Jesus. Around the early part of the 20th century, new thought, positive thinking, philosophy infected the church. And it's been there ever since. And it's grown into what is, today, what is today's word of faith movement. And there's a number of famous names and ministries that are regular on the religious TV channels who are preaching this stuff. And New Age philosophy, which has nothing to do with Christianity, says the same things as well. And then, of course, if you, if you go on the internet or you go on TV channels, there are many ministries laying claim to your support. Money paid to them will release the thing you wish for. You know, like a, it's, it's almost like you know, the thing that Luther complained about to the Pope. You know, the selling of indulgences. When the coin hits the, hits the box, you know, the soul of the person you've just paid for will fly out of, of, of hell back into the bosom of the Father. You know, and it's, it's like they're paying for people's sins to be forgiven. Indulgences. The way that people preach about, you know, you give to my ministry and this will happen for you. Same thing to me. A bit like Martin Luther. As I said last week, any number of books and articles about stewardship only deal with money. This is only part of it. But money is a big deal. Money. Wealth. Treasure. There are three main points of view about money. Uh, these are generally held views amongst Christians. The first idea is that money is good. It's good to be rich. And in fact, being rich is being blessed by God. Interestingly, that's what the Jewish leaders thought. The scribes and the Pharisees and so on, they thought if you were wealthy, you were blessed. I mean, my goodness, you know, there goes a blessed man. Look how much he's got. You know what gives the lie to that? Book of Job. Book of Job. His friends thought because he'd lost everything, God must hate him. You can't be a righteous man, Job. You know, God God's, can't be on your side because look, you've lost it all. Uh-uh. Second one is this, that money is not good or evil. It's what we call amoral. It isn't positive or negative. It's just there. And, and it depends how we use it. If you use it well or use it badly. So some people think money is amoral, neither good nor evil. And the third idea, well, I'm going to give you that one from Jesus today. How did the Lord Jesus talk about money? I did really, I did really pinch that one, okay? So don't put that anywhere and say I did it. I pinched that from Crossway, the website. I, I just like it. It's a bit of fun. How did the Lord Jesus speak about money and wealth? He makes some very clear statements about money and then other statements about our attitude towards and our handling of money. And from now on, you can join in with an amen if you want to, okay? <laughs> Your vow of silence is over. <laughs> in the beginning, there was no money. It was invented, coins were invented about uh, 500 to 600 years before Jesus came. In other words, around about the time of uh, Isaiah. They invented coins and money. We invented it. We made it a long time ago, but wasn't in the creation. In other words, God didn't invent money. We did. In the time of the Lord Jesus, people handled money. They worked for wages. They paid taxes. They gave to the Lord money. They had to buy their supplies. So the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament writers is not out of date. It speaks to our world. We live in a similar world. And in fact, having been at a theological conference this week that talks about uh, 
uh, humans and gender and sexuality and transgender and all the rest of it. We're living in just as confused a world as the first century. If you read anything about the history of the Roman Empire, we're back in those times, folks. So the things the Bible writes to, says to us, are not out of date. They are very, very current. What world do you live in? What world do you live in? I mean, we live in this world. The corruption and, 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 and deceit and, and greed. Money matters to us. We need it to live. There's no avoiding that. You can go off, gro- off grid and raise a few goats if you like and try, but you know, sooner or later someone's going to come after you for some bill. We need it to live. We work hard to get it. No wonder we value money. I've worked hard to get that. That's the, that's the instinctive response, isn't it? We can't ignore money and go back to swapping my grain for your honey or, you know, my sheep for you. <laughs> exactly. But we need to learn then how to handle money wisely for God's glory. So let's understand some things the Lord, Shiel, Lord Jesus tells us about the nature of money. And the first one is this, that money is a false god. Money is a false god. Matthew 6, no one can be a slave of two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and mammon, money. Jesus is making money, characterizing it as as a god, a false god, which you can choose to love and to serve and to follow. And he says, you cannot serve God and money. It's the false God. Here's the true God, there's the false one. But if you devote yourself to money, you are serving an idol. A false God. Then at the end of the parable of the unrighteous steward. Jesus says it again in a different place, different context. He says, the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, mammon, that's the same word, so that when it fails, they may welcome you to eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little, and he's talking about money being the very little, is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little in handling money is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, mammon, who will trust you with what is genuine, with what has real value, true value? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves, God and money, mammon. So three times the Lord Jesus characterizes money as an idol, a false god. There can be no doubt that the money has the influence of a god in this world. It's the master of most people. It can't be our master if we're Christians. We have a master, the Lord Jesus. We have a God, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. So we can't allow money to take any part of Godship, of mastery, of lordship in our lives. So Jesus says, in at least two contexts, you can't serve money and serve God. You can't love money and love God. And then, so we're either serving God or mammon. I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a choice there. God or mammon. But you can't do both. It is impossible, says Jesus, to do both. Don't give me that one. You choose between. And then Jesus says very clearly, you know, the Is money good? Is money neither good nor evil? Is money evil? Jesus very clearly says here, money is unrighteous. Hmm. So whatever opinion people might have, I'm going to go with Jesus' opinion on this one, yeah? 
Money is unrighteous. It has no good in itself. We've just read it twice in that passage in Luke 16. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous money. And if you've not been faithful with the unrighteous money, he will trust you with what is genuine. I don't want to disagree with the Lord Jesus and say anything about money that he hasn't said. It's our creature. We make money literally in our image. Most money has a human face on it. It's made in our image. It has our values. We made it to do the things that we want to do with it. And what we are doing when we are Christians is we're handling something that was made for, in, for this purpose. It's unrighteous and we're trying to use it to do some good instead. No wonder it's a battle. It's part of our world of sin and rebellion. It's like us. It's unrighteous by nature, falling short of the glory of God. It comes with all of our wrong values stamped into it, printed on it. And if you can ever explain to me all the things that are on a dollar bill in American currency, I'd be very interested to hear it because there's some weird stuff on their currency. Yet we are to use it for good and the glory of God. We're to use unrighteous money to prepare for heavenly welcome and reward. Jesus uses this extraordinary expression, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous money so that they will welcome you when you arrive in heaven. You know? Well, what is that? Well, it's, it's being hospitable, it's being caring, it's, it's giving time and attention to, to those who are not yet Christians. It's sitting down and paying for the coffee with them and, you know, making friends, using money to, to build relationships with people that strengthen and help people of all kinds, Christians, non-Christians, you know, whether they're rich or they're poor, you helping them. And supporting them and befriending them, using money to do that. And a bit like, you know, when Karen and I go to a friend's party down in East London, we see people we haven't seen for years and they talk to us and oh, wow, it's great. They're still a Christian, they're still serving the Lord, it's wonderful. What about when you get to glory and people come and say, you, I was the person you had that coffee with. I was the person you said, you, 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 you quote, lent some money to. I never paid it back. I'm really sorry, but thank you so much. Make friends for yourselves with the, by using unrighteous money, Jesus says. We can do good with unrighteous money, but it doesn't change its nature. It's part of our fallen world of humanity. I'm relying on the words of Jesus there. And then, next one. Money is deceitful and disappointing. Again, we just read it in Luke. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous money, mammon, so that when it fails, it's not if it fails, when it fails, money will ultimately disappoint you. If that's what your heart is set on, when you've got it, there'll be a point at which you wish you'd never bothered to get it because it it's not doing you any good right now. There are things that happen in life that money cannot fix. Relationship breakdown. Huge, terrible, you know, catastrophe coming to you. Disease. I'm not prophesying stuff to you. I'm saying the stuff that happens, money cannot fix. And the stuff that happens, you would give all your money away in a moment if you could undo that problem. If you could reverse what's just happened. When the really big things in life happen, no amount of money is enough. Money doesn't make people happy. You can buy passing pleasure and amusement, but you can't buy joy. You can build a big house and a quiet place, but you can't buy peace. And even the Beatles used to sing, money can't buy me love. And in the parable of the seeds and the soils, Jesus also tells us this, about why some Gospel truth, some seed of God's word, doesn't produce fruit in everyone. Here's one, one of those instances. Others are sown among thorns. These are those who hear the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction, that's a strong word, isn't it? You're being seduced, pulled around. Your emotions are being manipulated. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Oh dear God, have we seen people that that has happened to? I know people who came here over the years and uh, they were in need and trouble and uh, we, we 
talk to them and discipled them and maybe even baptized them. But you know what? Once they were sort of sorted and it was okay, they disappeared. People give up on faith, obedience, and discipleship because of these things. Others, it's because of persecution and opposition. But these things will turn you away from faith, obedience, and discipleship to Jesus. The worries of this world, this age, the seduction or deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things, choke the word so that that person becomes unfruitful. Sobering, isn't it? Money will deceive you. It's, 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 there's something twisted in it. It wants to wrap around your heart like a, like a poison ivy. It promises much but cannot deliver anything of real lasting value. And notice that in explaining the parable, Jesus tells us that some people give up on faith, discipleship, and so on for that of those reasons. Money with its attendant worries and desires trips people up from following Jesus. That's what Jesus said. But further than that, we've got in the scripture clear examples of money can keep you from Christ. Money can prevent you from coming to faith in him. Even though you've seen it and you get it and someone's explained it, and oh yeah, 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 mm, no, I can't do that. The example, of course, is the rich young ruler, the rich young man. Just then someone came up to him and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him. Jesus answered, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness on your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man, very audaciously, said, I've kept all of those. What do I still lack? Listen to Jesus. If you want to be perfect, which is to say mature, whole, go, sell all your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is a verily, verily, amen saying, amen, amen saying, Holman Christensen says, I assure you. But this is an amen, I mean, I say to you. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. I don't care what preacher says the opposite. Jesus said that. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, there are preachers who will say, yeah, okay, you enter the kingdom with nothing, but then on the other side of the, of the needle, of the gateway or whatever else, you, God loads it all back onto you again. So you only lose it for a little while. Uh, no. no. There are others, not just that young man, for whom getting rid of their wealth is, how, is the only way they are going to grasp hold of the kingdom of God. Do you ever hear these two illustrations Jesus gives? Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, because he's found something really great, yes? He's found it. He goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. I've got to get rid of all that because I'm... Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in Son of in search of fine pearls. When he finds one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. They talk about you can't take it with you when you go. You can't bring your wealth and all your attitude towards it over into the kingdom of God. Something's got to change. Either all the wealth has got to go or something radical has got to change in how you handle it. Sell everything to find and follow Jesus. You don't hear that message very often, do you? But it's, it's those who have abundance that need to be most careful about that. C.S. 
see, this is a heart issue. And this world runs on a fuel called the love of money. The love of money. Enough is never enough. Who, who wants to hear about contentment, being content with what you have? No, no, no. No, enough is not enough. More. More. Gimme, 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 gimme. Is the language of our world. I deserve it. Really? Okay. We've heard what the Lord Jesus said about money and loving and serving, that deceitful, disappointing, false deity. You can't love God and love money. He said it in a number of ways, different statements, parables, and dealing with a rich young man. Let me read through some further scriptures with you about the love of money. Then I'll comment on them. Well, I might comment on the way through, you know me. 1 Timothy. He's talking about false teachers and others. And he says, people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Well, actually, don't a lot of modern Christians think exactly that? That if you're godly, you're upright, you know, you're blessed, you're a child of God, of course you're going to accumulate money. But here, this is false people, false teachers. They imagine godliness is a way to material gain. In other words, righteousness must equal riches. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And there's, there's one of a number of scriptures in the New Testament which are clear warnings to those who are rich, who have plenty. Those who want to be, or want to be rich, sorry, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to be rich fall into temptations and traps. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The King James has it a bit too strongly, of all evil. Pride is the root of all evil. The first sin, the first primal sin within, in Satan and then in Adam and Eve was pride. I will be as God. All right? So pride is the root of all evil. But money is the root of many kinds of evil. And by craving money, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. 2 Timothy. Same writer, Paul, to the same man, Timothy. Know this. Difficult times will come in the last days. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Whoa, really? <laughs> it's a sign of the, the last generation, is it? Boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. They still have, they're still religious, they still claim perhaps to be Christians. Avoid these people. And Paul writing to the Hebrews. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That should be up there. <sighs> what can man do to me? The notes are right. The screen is wrong. I know of at least one popular ministry is on record as saying it's okay to love money so long as you love Jesus more. Well, that's not true, is it? No, no. Keep yourselves, keep, one version says, keep your hearts free from the love of money. The love of money is like a disease. You don't want to have anything to do with it. 
We're warned by scripture to avoid the love of money, to keep ourselves free from it. It's destructive to us. It's contrary to love for God. It's a poison at work in our hearts. You know, you do know you can love something without having it, don't you? Love of money isn't because you've already got it. You can love it because you haven't got it. (laughs) Yeah? Because longing is part of loving, you know? You want this and you want this person even. And you're longing for it or them. That's, that's part of loving. Inappropriately very often too. Longing for what shouldn't be yours. It's called coveting. Wanting what isn't yours and what you do not have. But you want it. That's called coveting. So love is twisted into coveting because you, lo- you want what you haven't got. There are probably more people the, who love the money they haven't got than the money they have got. Right? And it's, but it's still the love of money. And love of money is at the root of many kinds of evil. It's seen in covetousness, wanting what you haven't got, in greed, grabbing more, defrauding others, not paying them their wages and so on, theft, con- radical consumerism. Now it's get, 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 spend, spend, spend. Loving money is even seen in spending behavior. I've got to be. I've got to be getting some. I've got to get the next. I've got to get the next one. I got to, and I've got to see the label. See, see the label. You know. Look what I'm wearing today. See the label. I went to a wedding once, and people had some men had the labels of the suits still stitched to them. Ostentatious consumerism, being seen to spend. That's part of the love of money. And by the way, you, people are usually borrowing to do those things. They're spending what they haven't even got to be seen to be spending. Right? Other New Testament scriptures warn us about pursuing riches. They warn the rich not to rely on their wealth, but to be generous and do good and help the poor. And I've given you a list of scriptures there. There isn't time to go through all of those. Well, probably there is, but never mind. Let's move on. So here's a very, very basic question. All right? go to work or you've, you've worked all your life and you're drawing your pension money comes in paycheck, salary, transmission you know, whatever lands in your bank account but here's the question who provides you with money? thank you, front row <laughs> who provides our income? God. the Lord this is Deuteronomy where there's the second reading of the law before the people are about to go and start the process of entering into the promised land. Moses reads the law to them again and then the Lord takes him from them. And this is God saying to them, be careful when you enter into the land and, and you know, the, 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 the cattle are being reared and the crops are coming in and the vines are producing the grapes you know, and you're enjoying life. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. He swore to your fathers as it is today. The Lord gives you the capacity, the authority to go and earn a living and having earned a living, live on the retirement at the end of it as well. He gives you that from heaven. You didn't do it without his provision, without his sovereign grace, without his sovereign help. It all comes from him. And actually, he's still the owner of it all. Many of us know songs about this, Jehovah Jireh, which of course doesn't really sound like that at all in Hebrew, never mind. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. So actually, although, you know, your paycheck Salary and remittance might have this council or that company or that, PA, P, P, that, that health trust name on it. Here's the truth, folks. The Lord is our provider. That's why, as Christians, when one, one uh, flow of income comes from a particular job or the job is getting too difficult, whatever, we can say, Lord, show me where else to go so that you can continue to provide for me as I give myself to good, solid 
stewardship and work. But behind the, the Ford badge or the, or, or the Harlow Council title or whatever else, the Lord is our provider. That's the truth. And it's a heart truth. I didn't say hard, I said heart. It's a truth we need to take to heart. I am not making money for myself. The Lord is providing it. And we should aim, as Christians, at neither of two extremes. Neither poverty, oh, we'll just live like a, like a mouse then. And, you know, I'll just be really poor. No, no, no. Or prosperity, I'm going to get everything I possibly can. No, 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 no. Both of those mindsets are wrong. We are to live in the Lord's provision. His provision we steward with faith and obedience. As he provides for us. And whether he provides for us more or less, it won't change the way we handle things. Because we're living by principle, by faith, not by, by, by cash and cash flow. Whatever he provides, we'll handle it the same way, using the same principles of faithful stewardship. And if we're faithful with a little, the Lord can entrust us with more. So here's a little comment along the way. Observation. Theologians don't make points. They, make, they, they offer observations, I learned this week. You know, it's like the difference between preaching and theologizing is I offer, I offer this observation. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> I thought, my goodness, it's a whole language you've got to get into if you're theologian. So my observation is this. <laughs> Please don't claim you would be a better and more faithful steward if you had a bit more income. Please don't claim that. Because God is your provider. And as he provides you with wisdom to handle what he gives you, he'll trust you with more if you handle well what he's already given you. That's what scripture says. If faithful with a little, he'll give you more. So you can continue to be faithful with it. Jesus also said this, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Let's go to the context. The Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They sent their disciples to him. So this was guys who looked ordinary guys, but they were actually the Pharisees' disciples. With the Herodians, that's the Sadducees. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of... Do you think they're trying to wheedle him? You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman emperor, or not? But perceiving their malice, their wickedness of heart, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? I wouldn't like to be around sometimes when Jesus starts on people. Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. By now they're fidgeting. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, and don't you just love this? Therefore, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But give to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Pay your taxes, but also give faithfully what is due and beyond to the Lord. Don't withhold taxes from the Caesar of our day, nor withhold what is due to the God if you're a Christian. That is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. You don't get much choice really, do you? They usually take you for it. It's called P-A-Y-E, pay as you can it's, it's gone. But we make a decision to render to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. So what's the first payment? What should be the first payment from our income? It is this, the Lord's portion. First fruits or tithe. And both, both of those words are used in the language of Scripture. The first thing we should do when we receive income is to honour the Lord with the first part of it, which is a proportion, 10%. The tithe. The first thing. Therefore, my own conviction, my own practice is that I calculate 10% of my gross income, not my net after tax. I give back to the Lord 10% of gross, not net. Because for me, it's first. That's my conviction. 
That's my observation. You can think around that one yourself, but that's, that's how I do it. Tithing and giving will be the subject of our next Sunday morning in a couple of weeks' time in this series. But I'll presenting there what I believe is the biblical case for tithing. Giving 10% of our income to the Lord through the local church fellowship, not dividing it up, parcels here and there. And after that, we give in other ways too. But we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And we give to God what belongs to God. This is not the... This is not the whole time to deal with the biblical case, the scriptural case. I'll deal with it next time. But for the sake of time, here's just one reminder from the scriptures. Leviticus. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Now, there's some people who say, oh, tithing was about agriculture, bringing a tenth of your crops. Yes, okay, I don't, I don't grow anything. So I don't have to pay a tithe. I'll grow up. We don't live in an agricultural society. We live in a work-for-pay society. It was even like that in the time of Jesus more than it was in the time of Leviticus. So if, we, if, 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 I'm, if I am enriched, if, I, if my income, my wealth goes up by an amount, which is income, what am I doing? I'm honouring the Lord with the first fruits, with the tithe. Let me just make these observations, I'll use the word again, about this issue. Some people don't believe in tithing. I'm talking about Christians. Some people don't believe in tithing. Some people believe in tithing but don't do it. And some people believe in tithing but do it. Sorry, I got them in the wrong order. Let's take the last one first here. That last one is clearly, be very frank about it, it's clearly dishonorable, isn't it? You believe in it but you don't do it. That's not an honourable position to be in. Since tithing is to honour the Lord with our first fruits, if you believe that's true but fail to do it, you are not honouring the Lord. You're not being faithful in little things. But let me point some things out about that first position. Some people believe, don't believe in tithing. Okay. I've met some Christians that hold that conviction in good conscience and they argue this and they have argued it with me. I don't get the tithe thing, so I'm just going to organise myself that I'm giving more than that. I'm going to pick a figure around some figure that, that, that is more than that and includes something of an attitude, not of you know, paying back to God, but of gratitude to God. So I'm going to, I'm going to give 15 20%, 25%. That's how I'm going to give. And I go, okay, that's where your conscience is good. All right. I still think they need to understand about tithing, but nevertheless... That's how they figured it. I don't like the 10% thing, so I'm just going to do more than that, and I'm, then I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm happier. I think, well, okay, I accept you know, you, you're subject to your conscience. I'm not, I can't challenge your conscience. I can try to instruct your conscience. But. but others are not trying to exceed a tithe. They're trying to give far less than a tithe. They don't want to give anything more than spare cash to the Lord and to his work. And then people who don't believe in tithing but aren't actually wanting to be generous in their giving, but limited in their giving, here's what happens. A person with that way of handling their money, their income, sits in a fellowship week by week, month by month, and benefits from what happens in that fellowship, the leadership, the structure, the building, the events and the activities and all the rest of it. And in that community, there are any number of people who are faithfully giving Tithes and offerings, so that all of that happens. They are making it happen with their faithful giving. But here's somebody who says, well, I don't believe in tithing, but you can have that. Everybody else is making it happen. But that person is benefiting. Is that right? That's why when we talk about partnership in our literature and so on, we say that we have an expectation if people are partners with us that they, that they, they support the church realistically, proportionately. 
Now, 10%, it seems a lot for someone on, on little and doesn't seem a great deal to those who are rich. You would think, but actually, do you know what? Rich people are often the worst givers. The people who have more income are often the people who don't handle it so well. And I commend and honour those who I know who faithfully give week by week, month by month, when they are on benefits, when they are on pensions, when they're retired. God bless you, folks. You are honouring the Lord, and I honour you. By the way, how's about this for the gospel of wealth? You know, people, you know, I, I completely dismay, dismiss the gospel of prosperity, right? Here's the thing for the gospel of wealth. It, there was a time when someone believed a thing called the gospel of wealth, and he proclaimed it. His name was Carnegie, an American industrialist, became a multimillionaire. Carnegie used to preach the gospel of wealth to the other millionaires in his generation. This was at the turn of the last century. His gospel was this. We who have gained riches need to use it to feed back into society, to help the poor, to give people jobs, to build hospitals, to build life. That was the gospel of the wealth as proclaimed by Carnegie. That's why all over America there are things with Carnegie Hall. Everybody heard of Carnegie Hall? A public theatre for music, for music and theatre that was built with his money for anybody to come and get. And in his day, the price of the tickets were limited so that poor people could still get in. Now what do people do when they get it all? They keep it all. The Lord calls us to be stewards of unrighteous, deceitful mammon and do some good, if we may even say eternal good, with it. We looked at Matthew 25 last week in the parable of the talents. Remember the commendation of the master to the stewards had done well? Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. And the few things was handling some money they'd been given. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Give faithfully to the Lord the first 10% of income. Beyond that, give generously. And we'll talk about this some more in a week this time. In offerings or collections. And those are, those are interchangeable words in Scripture. If you're reading the wheat Bible plan, you'll see that the, the people made an offering to the Lord of their, of their wealth and their possessions so to build the tabernacle. And the women made an offering of fabric that they, they were making and so on. When we do something together to, to see something happen, to see a, a building built or renovated or, or, or someone sent out as a missionary or, or, or to help someone in need, we make a collection together. And we're doing it to honor the Lord, but it actually has a specific purpose. So that when it's done, it's done. It's spent, it's spent. That's what it's raised for. You see that language in the Testament. That is offerings and collections. Free will offering. And you see that through the scripture. Those were in addition to tithes. Tithes and offerings. And then Jesus talked about giving to help the poor as well, which is alms. You're giving to help people in need, to support those. When we do this, What's that? Arms. Old English word meaning help to the poor. Help to the suffering, the needy. And we should give in those three ways. Faithfully returning to God what is his due, what he asks for, the first fruits of the time. Contributing to collections and offerings for specific purposes, things we agree we're going to do together. Helping Hanukkah and Christina get a car out in Pakistan. For instance, that, that's a collection, an offering. We kind of sneak it up on you by asking you to buy a piece of cake, but you know you can put anything there without eating the cake. In fact, I, need, I think a few more of us need to do that because cake's not doing us a lot of good. Um, <laughs> and then there's arms. And Jesus says when it comes to arms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You, you, you know, you're not keeping account of saying, oh, I gave to someone last week. I'm not going to give to anybody this week. I helped someone poor last week. Go away. Be generous. In fact, there's a promise attached to helping the poor, alms, which isn't to any other kind of giving. And it's in Proverbs. It says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. He will repay him. The Lord will repay the money you give to those in need, who need help. So I don't think you're loaning it to them. Very often you're giving it to them, but the Lord will repay you. 
You lend to the Lord. People talk about generosity. Here's what I understand from Scripture. Generosity only starts after you tithe. When you give back to the Lord what he asks of you, that's not generosity. But everything you start to give beyond that, whether it's into the local church or to, or to, to, to missionary work or to Barnabas, that's beginning to be generosity. And generosity is measured not by much how much you give, but how much you've got left. How deep in the pile you're willing to dig to be good, to do good. Pay your taxes. Manage responsibly what remains. And I need to do something on that too. It's the Lord's money, after all, every bit of it. Having honoured the Lord with our tithe, our first fruits, what remains in our hands is by the promise of God, Malachi 3, we'll come to it, is blessed. All right? Having given to the Lord what remains in my stewardship, in my responsibility, is now blessed. I wonder if we can get this, Okay? When we Christians get married, we come to church together with the family of God, with our family and relatives. Why? Because we want to start the marriage under the blessing of God. In fact, it's the blessing of our families as well. And, you know, there's kind of missions and things and celebration. But with a sense of God's pleased with this. This is honoring to God. The way we're starting this new life as a couple is honoring to God. Amen? Amen. So, blessing. When we have children... Our tradition, our custom is we bring them to a gathering of the church and we pray for the child and we pray for the parents and we, we pray God's blessing. Mm-hmm. We want this child to start life blessed. Yes. I see offering my gift back, my tithe back to God, bringing it back to him as exactly that. I want, and this is, I believe this is biblical, I believe this is a promise of scripture, which I haven't got time to go into, but we will come back to it. When I've given the 10% or more to God, what is left is now blessed. And that is why, Carol and I can tell you stories about how God has provided for us and we have found when we didn't think we had enough, we suddenly, it, 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 was, it was okay. Yeah. We had enough. Without giving up on honoring God. Because it's blessed. Listen, people say, I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford not to tithe. Because I want God's blessing yeah. on my cash flow. I want God's blessing on what remains in my stewardship. Yes. Yes. And I, I can't keep the 10%. It's his. One elder at John Piper's church, when John Piper preached on tithing, John Piper said afterwards, he gave me a loan. I wish he'd given it beforehand. He said, you know, if you don't honor God with the 10%, he has a way of taking it from you anyway. <laughs> you don't get to keep it. Yeah. It gets... It gets you know, goes missing through the challenges of life. When we honour God, He honours us. When we give to Him, He gives to us. And that's not about getting multiplying factor, getting richer and richer and richer. His blessed provision will be enough for our needs. And I would rather live with less than 90% of earnings with God's blessing than have the 100% without his blessing. Since money is, according to the Lord Jesus, such dangerous stuff, it needs to be handled very carefully. In fact, and I'm finishing that. I would say you need to handle money with open hands. Those are well-worked hands there. I deliberately chose them rather than something nicely manicured and all the rest of it. Open hands, by which I mean open hands to receive what the Lord gives you and to give him thanks for it. His provision arriving to us through work, through other ways. Sometimes God gives in strange ways. He saves you from expense and so on in strange ways because you're living under his blessing. Open hands, you see the problem is there's the money, it lands in our hand and what's the human instinct? It's mine. Keep your hands open. Open hands to return to the Lord what belongs to him, the first fruits, the tithe, and to give beyond that generously. Open hands to give whatever else we feel. We're moved in our heart. 
offerings in the Old Testament Exodus account, were, the people were moved in their hearts to, to go and raid their tents and bring this stuff to get the tabernacle built. That was a free will offering. Moved in their hearts. If your heart moves, your hands are going to have to, you know, it's easier if your hands are already open. If they're like that, you've got to go, come on, open up, you silly what's-its. Open hands, ready to be generous and to give where you see need, where you see something right. And open hands to handle what remains there with care. You see, money is dangerous stuff and the love of money is a deadly poison. If I put a hot coal in your hand, you would do this. I said, don't drop it. Okay, I'm not dropping it. But if it stayed in any place too long, it would burn you. Money is dangerous stuff. Do you get it? Open hands, handling it wisely, carefully, not closing on it. The minute you close your fist, money, which is dangerous stuff, is going to do you some harm. Now you realize I'm not talking about literally. But I want you to get this image of open hands. When Jesus talked about giving alms, helping the poor, right hand, left hand. I, I've joked many times that that's why there's two trouser pockets, right pocket and left pocket, bit of money in each, and this one doesn't know what no one's doing. And so long as you're not giving foolishly, giving lots and lots and lots and lots of money away, the fact is this. God says, if you help the poor, I'll reward you. I'll repay you. I'll cold it as a debt. I owe David this much because he helped the poor. <laughs> I will repay him. That's the promise of God. We can't allow money and the love of money, and that's longing, not just possessing, to damage faith and obedience and discipleship. Therefore, these hands need to handle wealth and income and cash flow very, very wisely. That's where stewardship comes in. God is owner. I'm responsible. I'm accountable. But if I do this, if I'm faithful with this little thing, a few thousand pounds of dadam or whatever, God will reward me with greater things. Now that isn't more of the same dangerous stuff necessarily. But it's more of life. It's more of eternal life, life in God and with God. And certainly more of eternal inheritance. You see, if you've got it all now, Jesus says you haven't saved anything for the future. Lay up treasure in where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. But if all your treasure is here, you're going to lose it. Whether in life or at death, you're going to lose it. Money will fail you. If you need practical advice in managing money, starting with giving to honor God, please ask us and we'll try to get you some, provide some advice and encouragement for you. And I'm going to teach some more things on that, on how we manage steward money. But let me just ask you a couple of questions as we close here. How, and before you came today, how did you think about money and wealth? And then, having heard the words of Jesus, which I hope I have not misrepresented, but I have proclaimed, said them to you strongly, firmly, how should you think about money and wealth? Here's the thing. If the way we think about and the way we handle money is not totally different from the world, where did being a Christian go to? I'll be a Christian in other matters, but in the matter of money and wealth and, and managing cash flow and so on, I'll just be like the rest of the world. You're a worldling in that sense. We're not called to be worldlings. We're called to be Christians. We're called to believe and follow Jesus. And this is his teaching about these things. Who or what do you love? Including what do you long for? What do you daydream about? One of these days I'll get you on one. What do, what do you, come on, what do you daydream about? Eternal things? Or things that, are, you know, if you got them, they could be taken from you. Yeah. Just as easily. Who or what is your master? You see, this money issue 
is a matter of the heart. And many have said before my time that if you want to see someone's faith and discipleship and obedience, you might as well check their bank balance as their prayer diary. That is to say their bank statement as their prayer diary. Because if they're not honouring the Lord from his provision, then that says something about how they stay, how they stand as a Christian. Now I know that there are people for whom uh, you are limited because you're part of a marriage, a partnership, and uh, your partner, particularly your husband, has you know, control over the family finances. I understand that. I honor that. But God looks at our hearts. And our money, sadly, does measure our hearts. What do we want? What do we, what do we long for in life? What are we hoping for, planning for? What do we daydream about? Do we need wealth to accomplish those things? Well, maybe you want to build a hospital. Yeah, fine, okay. Or an orphanage in some part of the world. Great. Some great venture for the good of man and the glory of God. But if it's just about you becoming better off and having more stuff, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've missed, about, missed the basic fact about why we're here. We're here to image God, to do good, to serve others, to bring glory to our Father. I'm not here to get as rich as I can before I die, because there's no point in doing that. Is there? There's just simply no point in doing that. Because you can't take it with you. It's a matter of the heart, folks. It's a matter of the heart. And uh, our purse, our wallet, our checkbook says a lot about who, I, who we are and where our values are and what matters to us. But Jesus said very plainly, you, you know, you can't love and serve God and money. And his description of money is that it's tricksy. Hmm? It's dangerous stuff. It's deceitful. It's unrighteous. I disagree with those who say otherwise. So we need to settle in our hearts that we've got some thinking and some praying and some working through to do about the way we think about money. Not first of all about, okay, all right, all right, check now. How does my heart change about this? Now, yes, it's by taking more appropriate actions. So actions affect your emotions and therefore the more you do something, the more you straighten up inside about it. But also, you, you know, if I'm going to be gritting my teeth paying my tithe for the next six months, I'm still missing the point. My heart needs to change. My thinking needs to change. So let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge the authority of your words. They give us no wiggle room. We're caught to attention by the things that you say to us. And yet you offer us your, again, as always, great grace and great promise of reward that if we will be faithful with what seems like a big deal to us, money, but it's actually a little thing, you will reward us with far greater things. If we will handle this thing well, for the glory of God and the good of man, good of others, you will be banking for us something of eternal treasure, a great inheritance. You say it's in heaven, reserved for us, where nothing can tamper with it, destroy it or devalue it. We think of uh, the great crashes of commerce in the past century, maybe they're heading for another one, when suddenly things just lose their value. You, the things that are ours in you, Lord Jesus, can never lose their value. They are of eternal quality, priceless value. And I pray that we may set our hearts beyond this age into the age to which we already belong, the age to come, 
We'll be preparing ourselves, making friends with unrighteous money. Not making friends with the money, but making friends by using it. So that we have a, a glorious, cheerful entrance into your eternal kingdom. Being welcomed by people who are grateful to us for what we did for them and how he helped them. Lord Jesus, we bring our hearts to you. This is a fight. It's part of the battle that we're in. Because this world is run on money. And we can't live without it, but we need to live carefully with it. So help our hearts, I pray. Instruct our consciences. Help us to see that we're juggling something which has terrific power in it to destroy us, to pull us down. And we do not want to be one of those who lose faith and obedience and discipleship because money has caught us and grabbed us and held us in its grip. Instruct our hearts, we pray, Holy Spirit. Give us some second thoughts about how we think about the money that comes in and how we decide what money goes out. Give us second and better thoughts about those things in these next weeks and months, I ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.